Hi there. Pardon me. Would you have any gray poupon? I want my MTV. Hey, where's the thief? Does Barry Manilow know that you raided wardrobe? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Oh, gnarly! Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? But it's only authentic if it says members only right here. Live from Members Only Studios, welcome to Living in the 80s. I'm Rob. I have Debbie and Kevin with me here today. How are you both doing? Awesome. Doing great. Great. Great, great, great. So we, Kevin had this idea a couple weeks ago because, you know, we're always searching for new and interesting things to talk about here on Living in the 80s. And he says, well, what about if we talked about like misinterpreted song meetings, meanings like we think it means one thing when it actually means something completely different. So we've got several songs here we're going to go through and talk about. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to uh, take a, a quick break and, you know, for our station identification, like we typically do. And we'll be right back talking about these misinterpreted songs. Thank you for listening to Living in the 80s. We want to take this opportunity to thank all of those that helped make this possible. First and foremost, we want to thank Anchor for providing this platform for us to share this podcast. We also want to thank Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TunedIn Radio, and about a dozen others. We also want to give a special thank you to Star1079.com and Roundtown Radio, where you can hear this podcast weekly. Also, be sure to check us out at our website at livingintheeighties.us, and of course, on our Facebook page, Living in the Eighties. Thanks, and back to the show. Welcome back. So we're going to start off, uh, you know, ladies first, as we like to do. And probably the one song that has been most in, misinterpreted throughout the years and its own urban legends, we're, we're going to go strong right out of the gate. So, Debbie, you're going to talk, you introduce the song and talk all about what we thought it meant and what it actually means. Uh, the first song we're going to talk about is Phil Collins in the air tonight. And back in the 80s, I remember believing that this song was about him having seen a man who watched somebody that he knew drown and not lending a hand. And so he knew who this person was and invited him to a concert and had him sit in the front row um, and sang it to him. And boy, was I disappointed to find out that either A, it's about a lost love, or B, at one point, Phil Collins even said that he didn't know what the song was about himself. The words just came to him. So trying to figure out which of those two is correct, I'm not sure. But um, when you when you read the lyrics, you could see why that urban legend had legs. <laughs> 
I, I remember hearing this song. For one, I've always loved this song from the first time I heard it. Phil Collins is one of those people I have kind of like a, I don't want to say a love-hate relationship, but with his songs, it's either I love him or I hate him. Like there's no really no middle ground with Phil Collins or Genesis songs for me. In fact, I, I probably like Genesis and the Phil Collins years as a body of work better than the than his solo stuff, but I still like a lot of the solo stuff. But this song with those drums were just, I mean, just an amazing, like a haunting tune that that you could easily see why you know people would would hear that and go, ah, that probably is that urban legend's got to be true because he's feel, he's singing with such feeling. <laughs> so that's just, you know, me guessing, thinking about the song itself. But I also loved the use of it in um, uh, The Hangover. Do you ever see that movie <laughs> where they're in the hotel room and Mike Tyson's waiting for that part to come on and he just owned it with the drums? So that's good. <laughs> Kevin, you have, thoughts about this song? you have any thoughts about this song? Same situation. I always believed it because I the lyrics were you know as literal. It's like oh he says you know he saw someone drown. He didn't lend a hand, and then you know I read this story. Then I'm going, my goodness, that's amazing. Then find out none of it's true. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit disappointing. It's like that would have been quite a story, right? But no, yeah. it was just all about the divorce he was going through. Which the majority of the songs on that album were you know it's kind of known as his divorce album. He was he was going through divorce. There was nothing he could do to avoid it. And that's kind of what all those songs are about. So not the uh, very interesting story that otherwise would have been, you know, it seemed like a much cooler story, but uh, not to be. <laughs> so surprisingly, this song only went to number 19 in 1981. As much as you even still hear this song today, you would have thought it would have charted a lot higher than it did. But no, only number 19. And interestingly enough, in 2007 in the UK, it re-entered the charts at number 14. Now, what's probably the most interesting thing is uh, it, it actually charted three times in the UK. It went to number one in 1981. It went to number two in 1988. And again, number 14 in uh, 2007. So I would say the Brits love Phil Collins. Apparently so. Okay, moving on. Kevin, you want to go ahead and take that next song? Sure. Uh, the one I'm going to cover is The Future So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades by Tim Buck Three. I study nuclear science. I love my classes. I got a crazy teacher. He wears dark glasses. Things are going great. When you hear this song and you hear the lyrics, it sounds so upbeat and it's hard to imagine there could be any negative meaning in this song. And even looking at the lyrics, uh, it says, you know, things are going great and they're only getting better. Uh, and it's talking about a person that's in, in college because I'm doing all right. I'm getting good grades. The future's so bright. I got to wear shades. And, and then even talks about He's got a job waiting for him on, gradu on a graduation, which, you know, every college student wants that, you know, have a job lined up. And he's going to be making 50000 a year. And I remember when that came out thinking, oh, my goodness, I want to make $50,000 or something. Yeah. Um, and, and 
1986 um, dollars, 50,000 today would be about 124,000. So that's still good money. And if you imagine you're graduating from college and you're making 124,000, that's pretty good money, right? So this sounds like a great thing. And a lot of people, uh, you know, play this at their graduation parties because, you know, it just was this upbeat message. And and even the husband and wife duo that, that, that are in Timbuk3, Pat and Barbara McDonald, this all came about because things were going really well in her life. They had met, they got married, they were starting a family. Um, their first album was coming out. They were selling out gigs. And and Barbara said to Pat one day, she goes, oh, she goes, our future is looking so bright. We're going to start wearing sunglasses. And he wrote that down and he changed it to future so bright. I got to wear shades. But then he started coming up with this darker meaning for this song. And the whole thing about having to wear shades is there's this impending doom because you know it was in the 80s everybody was worried about nuclear disaster and that's what the song's about is he's studying nuclear science and his professor wears shades all the time probably from all the all the times he's seen the nuclear blast and it's you know it's made his eyes sensitive and he has to wear shades because there's the brightness they're referring to in the future are nuclear blasts going off around the world and the talk, the talk in there about the job waiting for him after graduation is talking about this demand that there was going to be for nuclear scientists. And in fact, there was another verse that had been written for this song that they took out, which would have made it seem a lot more ominous, which was, uh, I'm aware of the world out there getting blown all to bits, but what do I care? So essentially, these nuclear scientists have you know, created these bombs and they're going off around the world and people are getting blown to bits. But hey, they don't care because we're, you know, our future is bright. We're making lots of money. Uh, so a, a very dark song, even though you don't really find it in the lyrics because that was deleted out, but the author or the, you know, the person that wrote this, this was kind of their, their meaning behind this. So I found that to be pretty interesting. Hmm. Debbie, you have any thoughts on the song or just a tune you've just always known? You know, it, this was one of those that I kind of knew the meaning at the time that it came out, but it, it wasn't right there in your face because it was so upbeat. Um, as you said, and there was one one thing that I had noticed in, in reading about the song, and there was an EP of the song that was slowed down, and it had an extra verse uh, that said, blowing up the lab, blowing the professor, torn between two evils, I always pick the lesser. Um, and so, as, as you had said, Kevin, just a few minutes ago, had some of those verses been left back in, I think everybody would have realized exactly what the song was about. Right. Well, I was one of the people that was duped by this song because I didn't get those meanings out of that at all at the time. Uh, I just thought it was just a really cool sound and tune. Sounds like a good party song. Um, I was I was really, really duped because I bought the Timbuk3 cassette. And this is the only good song on the entire album. It was Hot Trash. <laughs> to be honest with you, it was like the oh, worst. Yeah. I'm like, and I did that a lot. There were a few bands. I remember buying a, a, a tape right around the same time by Cactus uh, World News. And again, one good song, and that was it. I'm like, it's before his singles were out, so you had to buy the whole tape to get what I will say this, Rob. You were yes. burnt sometimes, but there are many times it worked out, right? And you found songs that you never discovered. So that you, is you true. To, it, it's like going to Ross Dress for Less. You got to dig for your treasures sometimes, right? You got it. That's absolutely a great analogy. 
So this song went to uh, uh, number 18 in the U.S. way back in 1986. I'm sorry, went to number 19, went to 18 in the U.K. And, uh, you know, it's one that we still hear today and associate with the 80s. And it still sounds like a cool party song to me. But now I know the real meaning. So I'll take the next one. This is one of the, I think this may be the number one song of the 80s is Every Breath You Take by the Police. This is one of the most misinterpreted songs ever. A lot of people think it's a a nice love song. It's been played at weddings and proms and homecoming dances and make-out tapes and everything else, but it is about an obsessive stalker. So in a 1983 interview, Sting explained, I think it's a nasty little song, really rather evil. It's about jealousy and surveillance and ownership. Regarding the misinterpretation of the song, he added, I think the ambient ambiguity and is intrinsic in the song however you treat it because the words are so sadistic um it was the number one song in 1983 of course it's number one song in the decade it spent eight weeks at number one one really cool thing i discovered while researching this song is and and this is this is a quote by sting here i watched andy gibbs singing it with some girl on tv a couple weeks ago very loving and totally misinterpreting it. I could still hear the words, which aren't about love love at all. I peed myself laughing. So it was actually Andy Gibb with Marilyn McCoo, and the TV show was Solid Gold. Let's hear a little bit of their interpretation of Every Breath You Take. So, yes, that was Andy Gibb and Marilyn McCoo covering uh, the police's classic. So, Kevin, I know you're a big police fan. You can comment on this version if you want to, but if you want to talk about the song as well, feel free. Yeah, I, I don't have any comments on the one you just played. <laughs> that was really bad. That's the only comment I have. I, when I came out, to me, I just, I knew the lyrics, I sang the lyrics, wasn't registering that this was like, a very obsessive person who's uh, pining for this person he can no longer have and, and how almost angry he sounds about it. And I know Sting has mentioned in interviews, you know, people come up to him and say, oh, we played this at our wedding. And he's like, Ugh, like, what kind of relationship do you have? You know, <laughs> if you read the lyrics, it's like, it's pretty obvious right there that he's like, I'm going to be watching you every, every vow you break, which, you know, 
probably is, you know, maybe they were married, they, they've broken their vows, they're no longer together. And he's like, every time you break your vow, I'm going to be watching you. You know, it's, it's kind of kind of creepy when you when you think about it. Totally agree. That was one of those back in the day that, you know, when you first hear it and you're not listening to it closely, it kind of sounds a little bit like a love song. And until you really dig into the words, you don't realize how sinister it actually is. All right, Debbie, I think it's your turn. So why don't you take that next one? Our next song is by Christopher Cross, and it is entitled Laura. When I first saw that we were going to be talking about this song, I immediately thought of General Hospital because it was used as the love theme for Luke and Laura on General Hospital back in 1983. And uh, its use in that show is what caused it to chart. In February 1984, it was number nine on the U.S. Hot 100 and made it to number one on the adult contemporary charts. Um, and so in my head, this song was always just a love song. And in digging a little bit deeper though, you find out that it's a very personal song to Christopher Cross. He wrote the song about Laura Coffin Carter, an 18 year old student from Denison University in Granville, Ohio, who was killed by a stray bullet on April 17, 1982. She was riding in a car with her parents and three friends when gunfire broke out a block away and the bullet hit her in the chest. Uh, Cross happened to be dating Paige McNinch, who was Laura's best friend and one of her sorority sisters. And so he wrote this song to honor Laura's memory uh, for the girl that he was dating at the time. And once you really dig into the words, um, you realize that that is exactly what it's about, that it is not a love song. Um, he, sings, he says, think of Laura, but laugh, don't cry. Um, I know she'd want it that way. And so you can tell once you really dig into the lyrics that he is singing about someone who has passed away and what their final wishes would be for those that were left behind. Yeah, that's, uh, I remember this being a big, a big song on General Hospital. I never watched General Hospital, but whenever the song was on the radio, they talked about, you know, they would talk about, eh, this is Luke and Laura, this is Laura's song or whatever. And I always just took it like that. But then probably, not long after it was released and, and, you know, I associated with that show that they you know, started talking more about the true meaning of the song or what it really was. It's very heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's one of those uh, guilty pleasures of mine. It's a sappy, sappy, syrupy, slow song that I shouldn't like, but I do for some reason. So what's you, Kevin? Well, like I mentioned before we started the podcast, of all the songs we're going to talk about tonight, this is by far the saddest. It's just, uh, um, I never knew what this song was about. I never really liked it, to be honest with you. Um, but I heard it several years back. They It was on the radio and they were kind of talking about the story behind it. And I, I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's so incredibly sad. You know, it's just a um, person who's got their whole life in front of them and something happens like this just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time they didn't do anything that to deserve this and it's just incredibly sad story yeah 
it was. It went to number nine um, back in 1983. And, uh, you know, it has its place in pop history, but man, one of the saddest songs ever. <laughs> so next, uh, here's a song that you're a little familiar with, Kevin. The next one I'm going to talk about is Diana by Brian Adams. Unless you're a huge Brian Adams fan, you've maybe never heard this song before. Um, it was going to be on his Reckless album, and he kind of chickened out because he thought he was going to upset the royal family. Um, so they didn't put it on the album, but they did release it side B uh, on side B of Heaven, which went to number one in 85. And the whole purpose of the song was just kind of this comedic song about Princess Diana, you know, marrying Prince Charles and how it just, you know, Brian Adams is like, you know, the first time I saw you was in a magazine. The next time I saw you walking across my television screen. And he's like, he's decided this is the woman for him. He, he's got to make this woman, his woman, you know, and then she marries Prince Charles and they never actually say Prince Charles and they never say Princess Diana in the song. Um, but that's what it was written about. And there is a, a line in there where he says, uh, you're the queen of all my dreams. So it kind of hints to the fact that it's, it's Princess Diana. And the royal family wasn't real happy about this. And they did a little bit of a smear campaign saying that he was either having an affair or trying to have an affair with Princess Diana. Um, he's, he's never denied it or confirmed it he's he's been he's like we were friends and he kind of left it at that so uh nope who, nobody knows for sure but um uh why it has special meaning to me is because i was at an import record store on hamilton road rob one you've probably been too many times yourself right. and i got this little mini cassette it had like three or four songs on it and like a remix and one of the songs on there was this song Diana and and I just thought it was such a cool tune fast forward a few years and I'm in youth group and I meet a girl named Diana and we start running around together and just about the time I was ready to make my move she starts dating somebody and um, my personal feeling was he wasn't the right person for her he, he drove a truck I just thought that you know she was too fancy for that he kind of sounded like a little bit like a hillbilly although people probably think I do too um, and I just was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe I, I waited too long and I blew my chance. And I remember after youth group one night, we went to a pizza hut there on, on high street. And, uh, afterwards he said, Kevin, can you give Diana a ride home? I don't have enough gas in my truck. And I said, I sure will. <laughs> so she got in the car and I said, you know, I said, every time I see you two together reminds me of this song, uh, by Brian Adams and I played it for, and I don't think she really got what I was getting at, but, um, I, I played it for, and I just remember that like it was yesterday. So, uh, so that's always been a special song to me. And, you know, anytime, uh, you know, I play that, you know, she, she, she always has certainly liked that song because of the, the meaning it's had for us over the years. And uh, Brian Adams used to play this in, in concerts. And when Princess Diana, you know, died, then he retired the song permanently. So he no longer plays it in concerts, which is 
another reason uh, to lead to believe that the song was about Princess Diana. Kevin, when you were making your move finally with, yeah. with her, did you say, listen, you're too fancy for trucks? Did you did you say those words? I know. I, I never did. So it felt like they were together for forever. It was probably three weeks, which, you know, in, in teen years, three weeks seems like an eternity to have to wait for a girl. So I would have done that at some point. I would have been like, you know, you, you really seem too fancy to be driving around on trucks. But um, I, did, I didn't have to get to that point. So um, it, that worked out well, but I didn't have to go that route. <laughs> Part of, you know, my research on this song and just kind of, of course, knowing it well. And Kevin, I believe that was a record connection on Hamilton Road we were at. Yes, that's correct. Apparently, it, it, it truly was about Diana, Princess Diana, and she loved the song. And uh, he, he, I mean, he, he sincerely, like I, I read elsewhere that he really did have a crush on her. And like the rumor has it, they actually did have an affair later on. Again, like you said, he neither confirms nor denies it. I think probably to honor her memory, he probably just kind of leaves that alone. But Nonetheless, a good song. If you haven't heard it, you can't find it anywhere, hardly uh, Spotify or Apple Music or any place, but send me an email or something. I'll, I'll send it to you. Again, it's a great song. Um, didn't chart, of course, being a B-side. But And Debbie, you said you've never heard this song before. I had never heard it until we started talking about it for this podcast, and it is available on YouTube. So if you go yes. out there and look for it on YouTube, it will pull up because I was able to listen to it there. But yes, it doesn't appear to be on any of the streaming platforms when I was looking. Yeah. Great song. Loved it. Very good song. Let's see here. That brings us to, oh, we're back to me again. This song is, uh, well, I'll just introduce it. Uh, this is The Stroke by Billy Squire. The original thought was this song was about sexual acts, but it's not at all. It is actually about the hoops you have to jump through and the things you have to do in order to get your, uh, to get a record deal and to get your songs played on the radio for people to actually listen to. And uh, Billy Squire wrote the song. Uh, he had been in the music business for several years uh, before he did it. I mean, he was 31 years old. When this album was released so uh, he had had a 12-year career at this point bouncing around in a couple different bands and you know you got to shake the right hands know the right people in order to get any stroke in the business fantastic tune it was produced by mac who also who is known for producing uh queen albums and billy squire was a big queen fan and you can definitely hear that in his music well not only the way it's produced but the way the instrumentation is one of my favorite things in the in the song is that intro with the drum uh it's actually he hits the snare drum in the recording studio they looped it so you hear the that drum well here, here's here's how it sounds So that noise is the drum and then the drum playing back being played backwards. So makes it really cool sound, but great song. The don't say no album. Fantastic. 
Kevin, I believe you posted, was it My Kind of Lover you posted on uh, on the 80s page the other day? Yes. Yeah. So it just, Billy Squire was great back in the day. He, he had about, I think, three really solid albums in the 80s that were really good. Uh, this was definitely his biggest one. But uh, if you want to go back and hear some good 80s rock, this is a good one to listen to. So what are your guys' uh, thoughts on the song or about the meaning? I had totally bought into the dirty version of that song because that was one of those that anytime my parents would walk into the room and that would be playing on the radio, Zick, I would change the station or, you know, put a cassette <laughs> on or a record on because didn't want my parents to hear the song. So I had totally bought into the other meaning of the song. And up until you talked about it today, had not realized what the actual meaning was. Yeah, I'd always heard that that's what it was about. I mean, it's, and it seems obvious that's what it's about when you just read the title. And there are some lyrics in there that says, um, put your right hand out and give a firm handshake. So that, that sounded kind of like, um, but that's all about greasing the palms of the record executives. So um, it, it was, it's interesting. It, it, it's easy to make, it's easy to think one meaning when it's something totally different. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it went to number 17 in 1981 it seemed like the song was on MTV and the radio every time you turned it on. I still picture the, the grainy looking video of just him and his band performing in a, in a, on a sound stage or something. So it, it stuck with me all these years and, and I dig it. Good song. Hey, Debbie, I think we're, we're back to you. Uh, the next song that we're going to be talking about is Toy Soldiers by Martika. Back when this was popular towards, I believe, the end of the 80s, if I'm remembering correctly, I had absolutely no idea what it was about. It was not one of my favorite songs. It was, if it was on, I'd listen to it. But if there was something better that I wanted to listen to, I might be changing the station. Um, I thought it was kind of an odd song talking about toy soldiers. Wasn't quite sure what it meant until several years ago. And I heard someone talking about it and then looked it up again this week when we were going over the song. And it is actually about drug addiction um, and how drugs can control you just like a child controls their toy soldiers when they're playing with them. Um, and, and so I thought when you start applying that to the words left, right, left, we all fall down. And you can see a child knocking their toy soldiers down and just envision that, you know, the drugs are knocking these people off their feet and out of their livelihoods. Um, Martika wrote the song about a friend who was hooked on cocaine and as you get down towards the end of the song, um, she does say, how can it be? How could I be so blind to this addiction? If I don't stop, the next one's going to be me. Only emptiness remains. It replaces all. And once you start realizing what the song is about, those words have a lot more meaning than what they are on the surface. What did you all think about it? I always hated this song. <laughs> it's, just, it's just one of those that comes on and just annoys me. When, when the kids are singing in the chorus, I just want to turn the station or punch the kids in the face, whichever. You ever have those songs that just annoy the crap out of you? Oh, yeah. This is, this is one for me. I never realized the meaning of it. I'm with you. I'm not a fan of this song, but which is why I never listened to the lyrics, really. But when I looked them up, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious that it's, it's, I mean, it's talking about drug addiction because it's talking about, you know, 
the battle wages on and uh, my head is spinning constantly. So it's a lot of references to a person dealing with, with uh, a habit. So, um, but yeah, like you said, it's a good message, but just not a good tune. Well, it just goes to show you how the decade of the eighties started out so strong with music and up to the mid eighties and the later eighties, it was still pretty good. But by 1989, music had kind of, it was becoming the nineties and it was just kind of limping out of the decade. This song, believe it or not, was number one. And that's, that's really hard to believe. It is. I, I, I just can't wrap my brain around how there were, how this was the most popular song in the country at in may of 1989 crazy stuff but it's one that uh, people really most people really don't know what the meaning is behind it kevin we are uh we're back to you buddy all right the next one i'm going to cover is spirits in the material world by the police This is all talking about obviously people that are materialistic, um, and, and you know even though humans are materialistic, the intangible things in life are the key to happiness. So they talk about you know how politics can't solve our problems, which I think a lot of people think, oh, we'll just turn to the politicians; they'll solve our issues. You know, and that doesn't work, and the Constitution can't save us um, because over time it can change, and it can uh, it may not represent all the people fairly. Um, and it's talking about thinking deeply and mastering one's emotions and being a visionary and looking at the bigger picture to kind of overcome the material things of the world. So, um, and, and he's, you know, specifically speaks, speaks about leaders speaking and they, you know, with their words, they try to jail you and they subjugate the meek uh, and all the rhetoric is failure. So um, where does the answer lie living from day to day? If it's something we can't buy, there must be another way. So it's all about material possessions. And the more important thing is to uh, make sure that you're not materialistic. Yeah, this is uh, Ghost of the Machine was uh, a very good album. And I've always, like this song, I don't know, there's something about certain sounds and songs that just stick with you. And this is one for me. Um, I, I, can't, uh, I can't turn this off if it comes on the radio. It's one of the ones I just have to listen to the rest of the way through. So, yeah, it, it's a great song to me. Don't you, Debbie? You know, I think growing up, I had no idea how deep the song actually was. To me, it just had such a cool sound and a cool vibe that, as you said, I wouldn't turn it off. I listen to it every single time and still will t- today. But I had no idea what it meant as a teenager. And so it's it's pretty amazing when you start really paying attention to the lyrics and delving into it. Um based on a Hungarian philosopher's writing. The whole album was based on that. And I thought it was just really interesting to um, see how much Sting's writing was influenced. And this is already the second one that we've talked about by him today with a hidden meaning. And so you realize how deep his lyrics were when he would start writing music. Um, It went to number 11 in 1982. And uh, tell you what, this is just a great song. I, I don't think I've ever heard a bad police song, except the other day. It's funny because I've always kind of liked this song, but uh, Mother uh, on the Synchronicity album came on by, you know, random music the other day. 
and I used to like it, but now I heard it the other day. I'm like, this is just doesn't sound good. I know Andy Summers is singing on it, and it's you know a little different, but that's another story for another time. The next one is Debbie Harry's "One Way or Another." love that song (laughs) it's an awesome one and i had no idea i always thought it was kind of that cat and mouse chase between a guy and a girl and you know she's gonna get you get you get you get you um and then when i was reading about it the other day it's actually a song about when she was being stopped she says by a nut job um and so she said this song came out of a not so friendly personal event and she said in writing the song it helped her process everything and she says her quote is that she tried to inject a little bit of levity into it to make it more lighthearted. I think in a way that's a normal kind of survival mechanism, you know, just shake it off, say one way or another and get on with your life. And I thought, wow, that would be really hard to do. I would think if you're being stopped, because to me, that just seems like something that would be terrifying. And as I started kind of peeling back the layers of the lyrics, um, you start realizing when she kind of growls the words, and if the lights are all out, I'll follow your bus downtown, see who's hanging out. So this person is going so far as to follow her when she's not at home. And so you start realizing how kind of terrifying that situation had to have been for her. And I just think it's amazing um, that the song did have such a lighthearted feel to it. Technically, it's a 1979 song, but they're still playing it into 1980, and we still love it, and it sounds 80s, so we'll take it. It's better than uh, Toy Soldiers, right? Much better. (laughs) So yes, it it did go to number 22 in the fall, I believe, of 1979. So it's practically 1980. Again, it's one of the songs. I like a lot of Blondie music from back then. And at the time, I I, I liked Blondie. I remember when I first heard Heart of Glass back in the late 70s. I thought, oh, that's a really cool song. But the more she put out, I really liked it. But years later... Like, I love some Blondie. They just got this great mix of funk and disco and pop and rock and new wave and punk. And I don't know, just a little bit of potpourri of everything, which is probably why I like them so much. But Kevin, you have any thoughts on the song? Well, it's much more upbeat than the other stalker song we talked about, which is Every Breath You Take. Uh, (laughs) It's so upbeat. It's it's, it's hard to, unless you read the lyrics, it's, it's hard to find out that that's, what it's what it's about um it's it just sounds like a fun song you know so yeah i like it i like i'm with you i like a lot of the blondie songs that were put out the next song is i just died in your arms by cutting crew So Cutting Crew is a band that uh, they're from England and they are the first act that was signed to Virgin Records uh, in uh, 1985. And this song went all the way to number one. And according to the lead singer, Nick Van Eed, uh, who also wrote the song, 
He says, it's a song written about my girlfriend, who's actually the mother of my daughter. We had broken up, but got together for one night after a year apart. And I guess there were some fireworks, but all the way, all the time, tinged with a feeling of, should I really be doing this? I should have walked away. So that is, uh, it's, it's a story of a one night stand. That's what this song's about. I remember buying this tape back then as well. Um, hit and miss. It was okay. A couple good songs on it. A couple really crappy ones. Uh, which was typical of a lot of albums back then. Yeah, that's that's kind of not a long story about it, but people don't really realize mostly, I think, that that is just about a one-night stand. No Thoughts? idea that that's what it was about. I figured it was about a relationship. No idea that it was about a one-night stand. Yeah, I thought it was just like a, like a passionate thing, like, like if two people just getting back together and staying together, not like, well, let's hit it and quit it and be done, but that's kind of what it's about. No, I was saying I was saying saying the same thing as Debbie. I had no idea what that song was about. I like it. I think it's a cool uh, song. I like the music behind it, but had no idea. So uh, since we're kind of out of balance here, we're going to go back to Debbie for this for the next one. The next song that we're going to be talking about is "I Can't Go for That No Can Do" by Hall and Oates. And this was, I think, one of the first records that I actually bought in the early 80s, 1981. I bought it on a KTEL album. It was just for this one song that I ordered it. And um, I always assumed it was about a relationship. Um, loving so, someone so much, you'd do anything for them, except for that one thing that they never really say what it is in the song. Um, however, when you research the song a little bit more, it's actually an account of what it feels like to work in the music industry and feeling that pressure to do exactly what the record label and the managers want you to do and writing the songs the way they want them to be written versus the way that you want them to be written. So it's, it's a statement about what it's like to work in the recording industry versus a love song. I didn't know that until we started in actually, well, here's what happened is we you know, decided to do this topic and we're emailing each other back and forth. And Debbie put that uh, just kind of a brief description of what she just said. I had no idea. I also thought it was about a relationship. Yeah. When I was reading about this, uh, they said they did this intentionally to make this song uh, have a wider appeal to people because not everybody is in the music industry, but everybody's been in relationships, right? So um, they tried to write it in an ambiguous way. And they did the same thing um, with the song Maneater, which makes it sound like it's this woman who just will chew up and spit you out. That was actually about New York City in the early 80s. Um, mm -hmm. so, so they have these kind of um, lyrics that can be interpreted a couple ways to make it have a wider reach. So... So here, here's some, some fun facts about this song. So it was co-written by Sarah Allen, who was Daryl Hall's girlfriend. If you've heard the song, Sarah Smile, it's about her. So Sarah Smile wrote this song, co-wrote it with, with Daryl Hall, which is really nice. cool. And another fun fact is uh, when Michael Jackson wrote Billie Jean, he kind of ripped off, I can't go for that, the bass line there. The whole groove that's a kind of a ripoff 
And uh, when they were recording We Are the World, Jackson uh, told Daryl Hall this. And Hall said he did a good job of stealing it because he didn't even notice. Which it's kind of funny because when you have, think about We Are the World and USA for Africa and all these people in this big room and stuff. And, and you've got someone like Michael Jackson going to Daryl Hall and saying this. And kind of knowing what we know about Daryl Hall, he's just a, a musician and just a, a musician's musician. He's pays so much attention to the music and the songs and and every note and every sound and every everything within it. He's he's very that's why when you when you listen to a hollow note song, you're gonna hear a lot of of little cool noises and sounds and things and and just the harmonies are just so well crafted. I can almost see in Daryl Hall going, uh, I don't care. Like, all right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just make me thinking how that conversation sounded in context. Either way, this song went to number one. And just like most Hall Note songs, it's great. Next, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. This song was misinterpreted a lot when it was out. Uh, people are thinking this is like a stars and stripes forever kind of, you know, waving the flag, uh, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, you know, 4th of July, whatever. In fact, even every 4th of July, you're still going to hear this song a hundred times. But it, it's actually uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote this about the problems Vietnam veterans encounter when they returned home to America. Um, it's a war, you know, we didn't win. Uh, veterans of other wars received a hero's welcome. The vets ended up homeless and ignored and maybe even despised because they're fighting uh, this war that no one wanted to fight. And it's very, very sad uh, when you think about it, uh, this song probably should have been like a, a slow acoustic song versus a upbeat, you know, guitar driven, you know, which sounds like an anthem, but it, it certainly is not. But that whole Born in the USA album, I love, um, you know, Bruce's definitely had a lot of controversial um political opinions and he's very outspoken about a lot of things and rubs a lot of people the wrong way and i, I you know I'll, I'll be honest i've heard a lot of the stuff he said and done and just kind of not agreed with it but i definitely respect him as an artist as a songwriter and a musician I and mean, he's he's great and this song that album awesome it went to number nine in uh, 1984 when the album was released i think the, the single didn't like chart until 1985 there were like seven singles here that charted off this album but uh great song um you know it's about the struggle of a vietnam vet and uh not really the stars and stripes anthem that uh, everybody seems to think that it is it's mine that's exactly what i was gonna say it, it's, it's hard to believe it barely cracked the top 10 because that's one of the most well-known songs from the 80s you know uh that's just that's just hard to believe it didn't go any higher yeah and you can identify it in the first couple chords yeah the first notes of the song you know what mm -hmm. immediately what it is it's just so well oh, known man. even today so yeah hard to believe 
Yeah, nice. I remember Ronald Reagan using this on the campaign on the campaign trail. And Bruce is like, uh, you're missing the point. Yeah, you really have to, to look at the words to realize, oh, it's about a Vietnam vet that's come back home. Can't find the job. Um, you know, sometimes going to the refinery, you can't find work there. And he goes to the VA and no work there. And then talks later about 10 years down the road, nowhere to run, nowhere to go. So it's, you know, it's, he's been back for 10 years. And he still is is struggling from from what happened when he went to Vietnam and then came back. So it's a really depressing song, and it's amped up, and everybody thinks of it as a patriotic song. Very very strange. Yeah, most and most fireworks shows. This will be one yeah. of the songs that plays at some point during it, which is crazy when you think about the meaning. So, do do you think it makes Bruce mad that it's considered like this patriotic anthem? Probably. <laughs> probably, probably yeah, he seems kind of we pretentious so. that yeah. way yes he does <laughs> so, yeah. he's feeling misunderstood yes absolutely yeah and uh you know i don't care bruce we like it so all right so that brings us to our next song uh kevin uh the next one is big time by peter gabriel Now, we know the 80s was all about, uh, you know, the me generation and, and making money and uh, living the big life. And when people heard this song, they're like, that's what I want. This song's big time. But he wrote this as a satire about this, this basic human urge for success and then taking it beyond that and making an excess. You know, it says, I've got to have more, more, more. And if you look at the lyrics... And, and this is what's so ironic about it is people looked at the lyrics and say, yep, that's what I want. Um, he talks about, I'm on my way, I'm making it it's so much larger than life. And then he talks about, you know, I came from a small town. They thought small, they used small words, but not me. I'm smarter than that, right? I'm, I'm smarter than these small town people. And I, my mouth stretches wide open and these big words come out. And now I'm moving to the city and I'm going to make a lot of noise with the big boys and um, he's going to go to these parties and he's going to greet these big name people with a wide smile. And, um, he, you know, and it just goes on and on. He talks about um, I'm going to live with this in this big bedroom with a big snow white pillow for my big fat head. <laughs> it's like it's just, <laughs> and all this stuff is like my car is getting bigger. My house is getting bigger. My belly's getting bigger. My bank account. It's like all of this people read and go, yep, that's what I want. And he's like, no, you missed the point. It's like the, the, the point isn't to get bigger and better all the time. Um, but in the eighties, that's, that's what people wanted. So, um, so definitely misunderstood. Um, it, it, instead of, you know, being a cautionary tale, people take it as like a, a, a script for what they need to do to, to become successful. Yeah, I, I remember buying the album So by Peter Gabriel back then. And I knew of Peter Gabriel before that. Um, Shock the Monkey was played on MTV quite a bit uh, on, on his previous album. And uh, when that came out, we found out, which you know I didn't know before that, but uh, he was a member of Genesis uh, prior to his solo work. And he was very, very like artsy, more, more of an art 
artsy avant-garde kind of a musician uh, basically doing a bunch of music nobody understood or cared about but when this album came out it had a definite commercial appeal um, more uh, pop uh, but it had such a good like a you know the just you know, most of the songs on it had like like good dance grooves and kind of thing so i think particularly for american audiences this became a tremendous album i mean sledgehammer won all these video awards and everything and i mean it went to um number eight in the u.s and uh i just i i love the song and the album and uh it is just i always just thought it was someone achieving you know, trying to achieve to get bigger but now we find out it's uh, i've already done it <laughs> so good stuff uh what about you debbie I, I in in reading the lyrics, I just thought it was so funny that he used such a small one syllable word throughout the whole song again and again, big. You know, talking about the big city. He could have used a different word, but I think he's almost focusing on that small word to describe, you know, something large, just that reiteration of that same word. Um, almost a play on words as it goes on because you start realizing that maybe bigger isn't always better as you start reading it and listening to the words. So Debbie, I think you've got one more there. I do have one more. This one is Fortress Around Your Heart by Sting. So this is the third time that we've mentioned Sting in this podcast. So obviously, as we've said before, he was uh, very good with the lyrics. And when I would listen to Fortress Around Your Heart, I just thought that it was an amazing, beautiful love song. He's protecting the person's heart that he loves, making sure that she is not injured by anything that happens in the relationship. But he actually says that the song is about appeasement, trying to bridge the gaps between individuals, and that the central image is a minefield, that he has tried to protect the person that he loved so much by building a minefield around her and realizing when the relationship ends that to leave her, he has to walk through all of those mines that he set and they're going to explode and she's going to be hurt anyway. Um, and so this little love song that I thought it was is really more about a breakup. And Sting Things, does say uh, that he thinks it's one of the best choruses he's ever written. It seems like when... Sting writes lyrics, it's hard for us to figure out what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it, it certainly is. Yeah. Uh, I remember when when this song, when this album came out, Dream of the Blue Turtles, I couldn't wait for it to come out because like this is his first, you know, post-police work. And it was um it was something that uh, you know, as police fans were all looking forward to, and it was a completely different sound. Um than, than we were used to uh kevin did you did you like uh his post police stuff like what, what i don't know if we've ever had this conversation before um i think i liked it at the beginning just because i had made up my mind i was going to like it um but it's not stuff i go back and listen to much now um i feel like you know they were like almost like this punk band you know or new wave band with the police and then it became more jazzy when he went um, when he went solo, and, and I didn't like that as much. Now he did have some good songs, but I don't think they're as memorable as as the, the police songs. 
And, and I think with each subsequent album, I got less interested in Sting's music. Yeah, I would have to agree. I know um, when this album came out, I really liked it. I think he tried really hard to, to distance himself from the police sound as much as he could. In fact, like live, uh, he would even do some police songs and completely rearrange them. So I think he's just really trying hard to separate himself. And it's funny because you hear things now about the police, about all the infighting the band had. and Like whenever they made... Uh, an album it's like they just would just yell and scream at each other and and this great music would come out and i heard uh, an interview recently by Stuart copeland talking about this he was a drummer for the police talking about this he's like yeah we did fight a lot he's like but think about you and your brothers like the way you fight with your brothers like you would go nose to nose fist to fist knock down drag out whatever but you wouldn't let anyone else mess with your brother and you wouldn't want anything bad to happen to your brother and we were all three strong-willed musicians and what you hear is um the, the success of the band was because of the conflict within the band so whatever that was man the police were magic <laughs> so i still i still miss um, the police. I would love to see the police get together and make a police album that sounds like police music. I don't want to sound like anything Sting did or that Andy or Stewart did on solo, but I want to see them do a police album that is just brand new material. I think they're one of the few bands that could probably do that because you see bands now that that'll do albums long after their prime, and they just they may not sound like like, you know, I'm a U2 fan and and they've not made an album in the last 20 years or so that just really sticks out to me. Like, oh, here's the songs like, oh, that sounds good. But nothing makes me want to go back and listen to it over and over again. I think the police could put something out like that. Uh, this song went to number eight in 1985. Loved it. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those very, very cool songs. But but yeah, like you said, Kevin, I agree with you. The, the police stuff is definitely better than the other stuff yeah. um that brings us to the last song here and we didn't do these in any certain order we just when we started off the podcast we just said like, hey, you take this song you take that song and because we all kind of did some homework on these so this one here um it, it, great song um this is back on the chain gang by the pretenders A chain gang is basically a bunch of uh, prisoners working on the railroad or whatever. That's just, you know, just laborers. So the song is actually about James Honeyman Scott, who was the pretenders guitarist who had died of a drug overdose at the age of 26 in 1982. Um, the, it was going to be a completely different song. So Chrissy Hine, the lead singer had written the original uh, beginning of the song it says uh, i found a picture of you uh, these were the happiest days of our lives at the time um, she was dating ray davies from the kinks 
And that was actually about him. And then uh, news of um, James Honeyman Scott's death got to her and she continued writing the song, the chain gang being, uh, being held down by, by a drug addiction. And, uh, and he just could not kick the habit. And he also, his death was followed by bass player Pete Farndon, who died 10 months after that of a drug overdose. Now, Farndon had been kicked out of the band and then later died of the drug overdose. But that, that's a band early on that uh, suffered a lot um, of death and so forth. And, and it's, it's very sad. I mean, this song doesn't sound like it's a song about a tribute to someone who had passed away, but it sure is. And I went to number five in 1982. And uh, I, I remember it was a spring of 82 when it was popular. You know, you kind of remember who you were dating, where you were, what car you were driving when you hear songs. And I remember hearing the song quite a bit on the radio back then. And uh, I always did like the Pretenders. And this was a good song. And and it, it, not for several years that I realized what it was truly about. I think I just learned about it within the last few years, actually, that it was about, uh, it was written kind of as a tribute to a band member that died of a drug overdose. And then when you start listening to the lyrics, like, oh, like I can see that. You know, I saw the picture of you. Those are the happiest days of our lives. Um, yeah, so pretty sad stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. something I just learned recently myself. And I think I just learned about it tonight. I had no idea what it was about. So you just taught me something new. There we go. So we're about here living in the 80s. <laughs> think, think about a song like this. I mean, think about uh, a co-worker that you work close with. That maybe you have for many years and they become almost like family to you. And then you lose them. It's, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard, even though they're not your blood family. Uh, they do become your friends and so forth. So it's uh, very sad, but. Uh, that wraps up our talk, our, our podcast today. Several songs. These are just songs we thought of off the top of our heads. I'm sure there are other ones out there that have lots of other meanings and uh, lots of songs that are misinterpreted all the time. Some songs are obvious, like in, when you hear like Darling Nikki by Prince, you know what that's about. When you hear Every Breath You Take, you might not until you listen to this podcast. So, all right. Anything else to wrap up here? boys and girls uh no it's been fun as always yes, yes it's been a great time all right well hey thank you so much for joining tonight uh, we'll be back next week um possibly talking about uh misunderstood song lyrics and we may have matt moore singing what he thinks songs actually <laughs> are saying <laughs> so, i gave i ran the idea by him the other day and he's like Oh, that sounds good. So it's not next week. It'll be sometime in the near future. We're going to do that. And uh, if you've ever heard Matt talk, that's exactly how he sings. So you're in for, for a real treat. <laughs> I've heard awesome. him sing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Guys, thank you so much. And everybody listening, thank you very, very much. And uh, I really, um, I, I appreciate Kevin, Debbie, you giving up your time today and and uh, going through this with us, you made it a ton of fun and, and I've learned some stuff too. So thank you so much to both of you guys. Uh, thank you. Take care and God bless.
Thank you very much for your support.